Hello once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the host of Classic Wrestling Memories. We're following up an episode that we did a while back called Unpopular Opinions. So this is definitely a, a, a different episode. We're not covering a career. We're not covering a territory or, or an angle. We're just covering opinions and beliefs in the past about a pro wrestling that where maybe what everybody thinks might not actually be the truth and the truth can be unpopular. And kind of ironically, our first edition of Unpopular Opinions is actually one of our most listened to shows. So we felt it natural to come up with a, I guess, a popular sequel name to Unpopular Opinions, which would be Unpopular Opinions Part 2. Joining me once again for the second edition of Unpopular Opinions from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullet. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I, uh, forgive us for our lack of creativity in the naming of this episode. I, I figure as a fan of horror, if we go long enough with these and do enough of them, that eventually we'll be like horror movies and start putting a, a subtitle in <laughs> with yeah. part whatever. Part 17, the legacy continues or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a new opinion. I don't know why that happened in horror movies. It seemed to kind of happen around, oh, Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. But it's, it is now like yay rigueur for, for, for horror franchises. About yep. the fourth one, you start subtitling, but instead of just part whatever. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So we have, once again, three opinions, and we are going to look at the popular version of the opinion and then give you the unpopular one that we believe is actually the true one. So our first one for this episode, which, if you're keeping tabs, would be unpopular opinion number four. And this is about Hulk Hogan's run in the AWA under Vern Gagne, because a lot of people know that Vince McMahon did not create Hulkamania. Hulkamania was not born in the World Wrestling Federation. It was actually first utilized or born in Vern Gagne's AWA a couple of years before. And it's also known that there were a couple of times where Hulk Hogan could have won the AWA title, but didn't. Now, how much of that was... Booking, how much of that was Hulk Hogan being kind of the antithesis of what you would see as far as an AWA world champion? For those that aren't familiar with the AWA's history, you know, we could do an entire episode just on the formation of the AWA, I think. Well, we, but, we probably need to at some point, to be honest. Right, <laughs> right. But the very, very brief thing is the AWA was started by a wrestler named Vern Gagne, and Vern always accentuated... For his biggest stars, people who were great amateur wrestlers, because Vern was accomplished amateur. He had matches with Luthez and all that. So as a whole, the top guys were people that were also good amateur wrestlers. Not that you couldn't be a star with a brawling style or anything else, because there were stars in there, like Bruiser and Crusher and Mad Dog Vashon and all that, who kind of had their brawling style. But usually Bruce the Bruce, champions... Stan Hansen. Yes. But the guys who won the world championships and had the respectable runs tended to be very good amateur wrestlers. So you look at that compared to what Hulk Hogan was known for, and I think you can see how there was a little bit of difference. So there were at least two times, this is, this is getting to the end of the, uh, the history lesson here, again, cutting things very, very short. There were at least two occasions in 1982 and 1983 where Hulk Hogan challenged then AWA champion Nick Bockwinkel. Both times Hogan had won, quote unquote, that match. And both times, the ruling was either reversed or changed by the AWA, 
know if he had the title of president, but he was the authority figure in AWA named Stanley Blackburn. And we'll get to authority figures a little bit later on. Yeah, mark a note on that name. You will hear it again. Yes, but the first time Stanley Blackburn reversed the decision of the referee, even though Hulk Hogan pinned Nick Bockwinkle, it's because Hogan used a foreign object. So Blackburn overruled the referee and disqualified Hogan for that, gave the title back to Nick Bockwinkle. The finish that might be called the Dusty finish now, and this is long before Dusty was using them regularly. Which which uh, is also a, another unpopular opinion that we are probably never going to cover, but we have covered before. Dusty did not invent the Dusty finish. Right, even though, <laughs> even though it's I called mean, that, the that Dusty finish. Actually, probably been used for years, but probably made most known, most well-known in this era would have been in Florida under Eddie Graham, which is where Dusty learned it. But even right. Vern was using it up in Minneapolis. And then the second time in, I think it was mid-1983, there was a no disqualification match between Hogan and Nick Bockwinkle, and Hogan once again pinned Bockwinkle. Everybody thought he won the title, and then Stanley Blackburn gave the title back to Nick Bockwinkle, saying that Hogan threw Nick Bockwinkle over the top rope, which was supposed to be a dis- disqualification under those old rules. But it was a no DQ right. match. So why he did that in storyline, I don't know. And that's the type of bad booking decisions, I think, that can turn your fans against you. Yes. So, in the words of a famous comic, I told you that story so I could tell you this one. <laughs> Shortly after that, Hogan leaves the AWA, joins Vince McMahon's WWF, Hulkamania goes national, and a few years after that, the AWA goes out of business. It's not a few years, about, what, about six or seven years after that? Seven, about seven years, yeah. Yeah. yeah but it, it was on a steady decline after that. Yes, it was. This was the point where it got to the precipice of can we pull this back and save it, or does it go downhill rapidly? It went over and started going downhill rapidly at that point. Right. So the opinion that people have in hindsight was that Vern Gagne could have put the title on Hulk Hogan, all that Hulkamania popularity, and he might have saved the AWA had he done that. That seems to be a common interpretation of history. And I personally believe, and I think you agree with me, Trainier, that's probably not a correct assessment. We may not ever know because obviously we don't have time machines or can't go into alternate realities yet but i i think that the the, that's kind of being very overly generalized because you have to look at the way the awa was booked and the way vernganya thinks and you can actually draw some parallels with wwe today but the way i see it is it it absolutely was a blow don't don't get me wrong but i would call Mm. it a nail in the coffin, not the nail in the coffin, you might say, because I think Vince would have gone national anyway, whether he had Hogan Mm -hmm. or not. I think he, I I think he would have tried. There was other guys Mm -hmm. he had on his radar in the form of Kerry Von Erich. He still had Superfly. I now granted this is right about the time the murder happened, but right. And you know, and there were other guys, superstar Graham guys that were already seen. Yeah. That were already seen as, as huge stars. I mean, there was a time where he was thinking about picking somebody from Florida to bring back up the Florida territory. And I can't remember who it was that he was thinking, but Eddie Graham was pushing Steve Kern, who, of course, would years later become Gator or Skinner. Skinner and, yeah. And But at that point, you know, this is like right around or before Steve Kern forms the very popular babyface tag team with, with Stan Lane as the fabulous ones in Memphis. Mm-hmm. At the time, he was a good-looking guy, young guy, was in shape whose father was a, was a Vietnam veteran. I believe his father might have been killed over there. And 
He had this amateur background as a state champion in high school in Florida. That kind of writes itself in 83, doesn't it? That the, the, the way you could push him as a baby face. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to some that that knowledge might be a, a little surprising that Skinner at one point was looked at as a very handsome man. Yeah. And then Kerry, outside of, of, of promo skin, do we need to say anything else about Kerry in 1983? Yeah, he has the exact look and style that Vince McMahon liked. He he had that action figure superhero body, had the long flowing yep. hair, good smile and all that. Movie star, good looks, legitimate mm-hmm. amateur background. We brought up before we've talked about Kerry and world class. He was on the Olympic team in 1980 as a discus thrower, but then we boycotted the, the summer games in Moscow. So he would have been an Olympian. Uh, obviously, Fritz had a lot of sway in the wrestling business at the time. I don't think Kerry would have been as successful as Hogan because we all know Kerry was self-destructive and it unfortunately led to his untimely death later on. And who knows? Maybe if Kerry had gotten in a little bit more of a protected environment away from his dad, because I think Vince would have continued to look the other way like his dad did, but there would have been a point where Vince would have said, you got to stop this, Kerry, where Mm -hmm. Fritz wasn't able to do that. So that's another big what if, I think, in wrestling. Had Kerry been the one, would Kerry still be with us? Right, and, and then that also brings up the the question: What happens to the Freebird Von Erich feud if Kerry's gone and up north? What happens to world class? I mean, there's a lot of of what ifs that come off of if it wasn't Hogan, who would it have been? But to stick on this opinion, I agree with you that it's a nail in the coffin. The way I like to term it when I talk about this with, with fans and they ask me, Hulk Hogan not getting the belt from Vern was more of a symptom, not the disease itself. It was a symptom of, like you said, how Vern thought, how he booked. Vern was very much stuck in his, like you so eloquently put earlier, in his ideas of what a champion looked like and the kind of background they had, and Hogan was none of that. And you have to remember, the wrestling business was very different at the time. All the revenue was generated on house shows. There was this thing as, as, as pay-per-views. So the idea of having your television essentially be an infomercial for your house shows and your live events the idea of stretching out the baby face, chasing the heel till he finally plays the drag and vanquishes the bad guy was where the money was. And I think that is part of the reason that that Vern did what he did. There's also the thing people tend to forget where Hogan and probably part of the reason why he didn't drop the belt on Hogan. Hogan at the time, and you can speak to this with having New Japan World, Hogan mm-hmm. was going on the regular over to Japan at this time. Right. And competing as a top guy against Inoki and Fujinami and stuff. And was having really, really good matches that would surprise a lot of American fans as how technically sound Hogan was in these matches. Yeah. If you've only seen WWE Hogan, then you haven't seen what he's capable of. You watch him in the late 70s, early 80s. That guy could go. Mm-hmm. And, and so why do you want to put your belt on a guy in an, as an American-based promoter who's going to be gone, what, five, six months out of the year over in Japan? Exactly. So there's that issue. And then in the in the in the period between Hogan not getting the belt from Vern and and going to Vince, he also becomes a mainstream star because of of that that bit part as Thunderlips in Rocky Three. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Vern, being an older gentleman, understood how to capitalize on this mainstream popularity that Hogan now had. Vince did o- almost kind of a roundabout or a ring way of putting it or mirroring because. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things Vern did get in the 50s because television was still kind of on the boom and there were celebrity endorsements like Wheaties boxes and putting putting people on the cover of stuff. Vern did a lot of that. 
Yeah, but back then it was him doing it. Right, exactly. But he was young then. I don't know if he knew how to do it for another star. Go back and listen to volume 10, the Capital Wrestling Corporation. And we kind of go over this in there as we talk about the history of, of the WWE and WWF, whatever. That one of the things that Vince did when he went national, and this is all in that time when he's either going national or, or, or laying the groundwork for it, he raided all these territories. He raided the Crockett's. He raided Florida. He raided Memphis. No territory was probably hit harder, though, than the AWA. It isn't just Hulk Hogan. He loses Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gene Okerlund, who are, they're old school guys themselves. They probably saw the writing on the wall. He loses the Road Warriors to the Crockett's. So it's not just Hogan that he's losing. Hogan is just one big piece of that pie. Absolutely. I seem to remember Nick Bockwinkle saying about Heenan leaving, because Heenan had said that he, deep down, wasn't sure if he wanted to go. Now, granted, Mm -hmm. Nick Bockwinkle's a worker, but Nick said, and I said, look, it's the best thing to do for you and your family. Go. And, you know, the rest is history. Ray Stevens, who was who was there at the time, and Pat Patterson. And we know how big a star Pat Patterson came from Vince. And he became his right-hand man. Ray comes back down here to the Carolinas, to Crockett's for a short run, then he retires. And Pat Patterson, he goes to Vince and becomes the, the first Intercontinental Champion. So he wasn't just losing young up-and-coming stars like Hogan and the Road Warriors. He was losing established guys, too. And, and it makes you wonder if guys like Stevens and Gene Okerlund and, and Heenan... And these guys, Pat Patterson, these are guys that have been around the block. Mm-hmm. If they're leaving, they must see something, some writing on the wall. Do you see where I'm going with that? Absolutely, yeah. So I think it's I think it's a lot of reasons. And I think Hogan was just maybe the biggest public example of what was going on backstage. Another key important thing, we brought this up in our Memphis episode with with the the Reverend Dan the Dragon Wilson, that when when Jarrett and Gula split Tennessee and had two concurrently running promotions there. One of Goulas's downfalls was his insistence, and this is a story as old as the wrestling business, of trying to push his less talented son than himself in, in, in George. Well, Vern did the same thing with Greg. You know, it's mm-hmm. not that Greg, Greg was probably better than George Goulas, right? But Greg compared to the guy he put him with was Jim, Brian Blair. Jim Brunzel. Or, sorry, Jim, Brunzel, Jim yeah. Brunzel. Brunzel, worlds apart. Brunzel looks like an athlete and all that. Greg has buggy whip arms. Greg has a great mind for the business, mm-hmm. but he doesn't look like he can, as you like to say, Seth can win a fight. He he, he just looked At, too skinny. He, he looked like a bean. And, you, and, 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 and even though he was in his twenties, he looked like he was in his forties because it was he was already starting to go bald. And you're, like I said, Dick Goulas did it with George Goulas. We would see it later on with Bill Watts and Eric Watts. And let's be honest, Eric was probably the best athlete of all. That was a former star quarterback at Louisville. He had he had the athletic background. You know, and the first thing Bill does is have him beat up Art Anderson, who's perceived as, as a bad badass by the fans. It's not going to work. And Vern was doing the same thing with with Greg. He was pushing him down people's throats. So you throw that in there as well. You're you're not taking care of the young guys that have the ability to go up. And it, I find it fascinating that the Road Warriors and Hogan, being the three big guys, literally and figuratively, that leave around this time were very similar in their in-ring style and physiques, which is always a guy who had a good, and he, in that early days, you're talking about in the 50s, the TV was pushing, you know, a lot of fitness and health, but he didn't look like that. Okay. You're, you're, you're talking about Hogan and the Road Warriors basically having that, that kind of bodybuilder look and just, uh, yes, again, yes, looking like yes. the action figures. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Kerry, like we were talking about, but just even bigger than Kerry. And so it, it's Hogan and, and 
there was there was maybe two guys that had bodies like that up to that point that had been successful. Superstar and, and Ventura. That's it. Mm-hmm. So this is probably also another thing that that Vern's like, I don't know if I want to put my belt on on the guy who looks like it's just that's why he didn't push the Road Warriors as much as they felt they should be pushed. He didn't get he didn't push Hogan as much as Hogan felt he should have been pushed. So I agree with you. This this is an opinion that I think I would give not a hundred percent untrue, but incomplete in its assumption. Mm-hmm. That yes, I think not putting the belt on Hogan precipitated Hogan leaving. But you can un- kind of understand why Vern maybe didn't do it when you talk well, all the things we just brought up. But mm-hmm. once again, it's not the only thing. It is just a symptom of the larger disease behind the curtain in Minneapolis at the time. Right. One other thing to cap off what we were talking about with Japan. Obviously, the reason Hogan was going to Japan is because he would make big money there. So in order to keep him from going there, Vern would have had to have compensated him the pay equivalent to what he might have been making in Japan. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking a whole lot more money. And then again, what you wind up taking a hit financially that way as well. You wind up paying much more than you're paying even your, your past champions. And is there really a turnaround for that? Because obviously the AWA was not going national like Vince was. Right. I mean, remember the Japan is always for the right guy, been more financially lucrative than America. We, 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 I think we brought this up briefly in our Harley race tribute. Harley, one of Harley's title reigns comes in Japan where basically Baba offers a lot of money to him and the NWA just to put for Harley to put him over for a few days and drop the strap back. So Baba could say I was the world NWA world champion. That was solely about business. And when I say business, I don't mean like doing the right thing. Solely about Harley getting paid. Right. <laughs> and, and the NWA getting paid. They're like, oh, that's okay. That's so it, it, it's a stark reminder to fans who have these romanticized ideas about the wrestling business being a great art form. And it is. But at the end of the day, it's a business. And, and you cannot blame Vern, like you said. Vern cannot financially compensate Hogan the way Anoki was. You know, now if you want to have a debate on where that money comes from in Japan, spoiler alert, a lot of it comes from the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I don't want to talk a lot about that because I don't want any death threats on me. But, <laughs> but that would make for an interesting for future episode. Uh, mm-hmm. But and we do plan to talk some more Japanese wrestling. So, but but regardless, as a businessman, Vern's like he's gone half the year, and I can't make him stay the whole year because I'm going to go out of business, even if I even if I have full houses every night because he's here, just because I can't match what no he's paying him it's a business decision partly mm-hmm. yeah. it's not just Vern being stuck in the mud on an old and old-fashioned in his ways i think is what you're trying to say right right Seth? right yeah and i i think in conclusion the way i would put it is like, like we said it was a nail in the coffin not the nail i think right. even if hogan did stay and let's just say they came to an agreement as far as money and all that i think it only would have delayed the inevitable because we're talking sure. about Vern not being able to stay as creative or on the ball as a much younger Vince was at the time. Vince would have been doing the more polished production, the jam-packed arenas, when everybody else looks like they're in a soundstage. And Mm -hmm. I think eventually Hogan just would have gone anyway, and it just would have only delayed the inevitable. Even if he did have the title, we still have an ending similar to what happened. It just might have taken a few extra years. Let's let's be honest here. Let's let's just roll with what, what you're saying there. Every young star that, that Vern had after Hogan left eventually winds up somewhere else and becomes a bigger star there. Kurt Henning, the late, great Scott Hall. Rick Martell. Rick Martell, Tom Zink, Sean and Marty. Mm-hmm. The only guys that went to the AWA that were established 
were because they had already had a falling out with WCW or NWA, like like when the Bulldogs and Rock and Roll Express went up there for a cup of coffee. And that was at the very, very end. And Larry Zabisco, who was the final champion he had, the only reason that Larry Zabisco was still around, because he'd already been a star for Vince in the late 70s and was a star down here in the Carolinas, was because he was the son-in-law of Vern Gagne, married Vern's daughter. Yeah. And how long did it take Larry to leave Vern as soon as the company went under and come back here and join the Dangerous Alliance down in the Carolinas in WCW? Not right. long. I still like the line. It's it's unrelated to AWA directly, but it, I remember the line Raven had about Zabisco, where he, where Raven told Zabisco, the only things that are holding you together are, are chewing gum, paper clips, and selling out Shea Stadium in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> I love Larry Zabisco. It's well documented his love of herbal refreshments, right? Mm-hmm. But believe me, if you give the man 20 minutes, 10 of those 20 minutes are going to be spent on, on, on the run he had with Bruno. And, and he should be one of the greatest <laughs> right. angles ever in the history of wrestling. We have sung his praises multiple times on this podcast. But it, it goes to show you, man, the guy's a Hall of Famer, probably on that one angle alone. How many mm-hmm. guys like me had long careers and never had anything like that, you know? Right. Anyway, well, kudos to Larry and Bruno. We've we've talked about that at length on the Bruno show. but Right. <laughs> So that wraps up our unpopular opinion number four. We conclude that the AWA did not go out of business because they didn't make Hulk Hogan their champion. If even if they'd made Hulk Hogan their champion, they would have gone under anyway. Right. I think I think the correct way to to term that, if you want to do it, is is the the AWA didn't go out of business solely because they didn't put the right. the belt on Hulk Hogan. That right. is a better way to frame it. Yeah, yeah, that that is probably a better way of putting it. So we'll go on to our next unpopular opinion number five which is wrestling does not need an on-air authority figure. And you could kind of amend this or maybe put it in parentheses, especially a heel one. Because yeah. a lot of people, I think, look at authority figures as a necessary tool now where they, they show up all the time making decisions and such. And really, I think that mindset is born from the Monday Night Wars and the Attitude Era. Remember how we were talking about Stanley Blackburn before? The the idea and concept of authority figures have existed long time before that because there were authority figures even, even in WWE before that. But I think people remember Vince McMahon's on-screen persona of Mr. McMahon and how much of a fixture he was as the evil authority figure that it just became the norm because WWE eventually bought WCW and became the only game in town on a national level for nearly 20 years. So mm-hmm. I think it's kind of natural that people would think that, okay, well, this is the way they do it, so that's the way you have to be successful. And, and anybody can relate to working for a boss you hate at your job, which is, I think, one of the things that fueled the mm-hmm. Austin McMahon feud, is everybody can relate to that. Mm-hmm. But the concept of the heel authority figure does actually predate McMahon, because Eric Bischoff was doing that in the NWO. Now, you can certainly mm-hmm. argue that Vince did it better. I don't think anybody would argue that Vince didn't do it better. I don't think Bischoff would argue that. <laughs> <laughs> but even before that, authority figures were regularly used on the storyline. Jack Tunney was billed as the WWF president for years, even though it was purely a fictitious title. He was just an on-air character. I think we talked a bit about him. I think we also in that, that volume 10 the about Capital Wrestling. I think we might have mentioned him a little bit. We also mentioned it in the Jim Crockett Jr. tribute because mm-hmm. they were him and his brother Frank were promoters in the Buffalo New York Canadian area who had, a, had, a, had dealings with the Crockett's down here in Charlotte, but then switched and flipped to, to Vince and Vince decided, well, Jack's he's a worker and he's been on camera before made sense. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. You you did not doubt that this was a guy who knew what to say in a boardroom or a business room. You know, he just yeah, he, look, he, he look, had that look, look. Good in a suit, as you like like to say, Seth. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the authority figure. I mean, yes, they were around. And some might take that as more of a reason why we need authority figures, but let's look at mm-hmm. other examples. Jim Crockett Promotions. I mean, yes, Jim Jr. was shown as being the promoter, but he wasn't on regularly. Portland. Portland have a authority figure? Yeah, sometimes sometimes Don Owen would come on. Sometimes. Yeah, but they they really weren't done often to advance no, story. No, and, no. I mean, you, yeah, you might have Fritz down in Dallas or... Sometimes in some of the other NWA affiliated territories, including Crockett's, they would have Bob Geigel, who was the promoter in Kansas City, along with Harley, come on as the president of the NWA. In fact, one of my favorite angles ever was Bob's a former worker, where he stripped Magnum TA of the U.S. title because this was the building up of the feud between Magnum and Nikita that led to the the Best Seven series. That's you know now famous. That that stripping of the title is what set this up. The whole angle was started because they were having a contract signing for the U.S. title where Ivan was at the table with Nikita and Magnum T.A.'s real-life mother was at the table with him, who they had established through vignettes was like a big inspiration in, in, in Terry's life. And to stay in line with the characters and the, the evil, reviled communist regime of the Soviet Union, Ivan makes these comments about how she doesn't know her place, she should be in the kitchen, and she's just rude to her. To which precipitates Magnum jumping over the table and attacking him. <laughs> and then the next week on TV, Bob Geigel strips him of the title. And Magnum, being a babyface, says, okay, I'll give you the title because I respect authority. But this I'm doing as a man that punched Bob Geigel. Don't you ever talk about my mom. <laughs> I will defend my mom. Which is, even though it's, it's a heelish thing, it, the way he framed it is a babyface thing. Right, He's defending right. his mother. One more babyface. But so there were authority figures, but they were... They were neutral at, at best, at worst, maybe a little bit leaning towards the, the baby faces. They were never heels. And the reason why I, we were going through trying to figure out the three unpopular opinions we were going to discuss in this episode, I think I had originally brought this one up because I remember a few years ago reading an article in one of the many online wrestling whatever today, people that have no, never been in the business, have not been watching as long as me and Seth are, who are entitled to their opinions, but show their lack of history of, of the wrestling business as a whole, which half of me hates because I consider myself a wrestling historian, but half of me loves because what would be the point of a podcast like this if they did, if they did know history? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I have mixed emotions. But, but this, one, this one internet keyboard warrior in their article stated that, that the heel authority figures were a, a long-running thing in wrestling. It always been around and was when wrestling was the best when they had them. I'm like, no, they're not. There's an 85... 100-year history of pro wrestling where there were any type of heel authority figures mm-hmm. and they only they only came around in the mid-90s and they only had a, about a what a 10-15 year run right it showed an extreme lack of understanding or knowledge of the history of the business or understanding of the business as a whole and it just it just really really set me off when i, I think i remember calling you right away when i read that article I was like can you believe this do you remember mm-hmm. that it's about a year or two ago yeah, and and I, I think I had a, a a similar vibe because the formula of WWE, especially since the Attitude Era, for the most part, that the formula has been much the same thing. Where 
They, they open with that 20-minute promo that always gets interrupted, and that's where they make their main event for the end of the night because apparently mm-hmm. nobody on screen in storyline is able to book a, a main event to advertise ahead of time for, for an episode right. of Raw. And the idea was, well, this is just how it's done. This, this is the formula. This is how it's like, yeah, I seem to remember watching uh, Saturday Night's main event back in the day when the, the, the episode would open and Hulk Hogan would come to the ring to, to do a promo and then... It was interrupted by Rowdy Roddy Piper, and then mm-hmm. they have the argument, and then Jack Tunney comes out and makes the main event at the end of the night, or Hulk Hogan versus right. JYD against Roddy Piper and Orndorff or something like that. No, Saturday Night's main event was never like that, ever. They had their matches advertised ahead of time, and yes, it was a different era, but the point is, is to try to say that that's the only way you can do it is the, the way it's only been done modern for the last a decade or two, I, I think is kind of silly. Hopefully you get what I'm getting at by when I say that. Oh, yeah, because I, I remember when I first brought it up to you, and I was obviously extremely impassioned about it. And you just very, very calmly said, do these people not know wrestling existed before 1995? I think <laughs> <laughs> which, which kind of, you calm me down a little bit. I, I look back, besides the God, Bob, Bob Geigel story, I just, as my years as a fan, it, what would happen is obviously the era and territory I grew up in, it was the Four Horsemen. If it wasn't the Russians or Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express doing some kind of nefarious heelish tactics, that would lead to some kind of controversial thing. And then the next week on the 605 show or on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, here's Tony Schiavone or Bob Kyle introducing Jim Crockett Jr. One of those rare times he got on television with him just very succinctly telling the horseman, no, this is how it's going to be. I've watched the tape. And, and he spoke with authority. And you, as a fan, speaking of myself as a fan, you were conditioned. Oh, when Jim Crockett Jr. shows up, this is a big deal. Right. That's the exactly the type of reaction I would have when Jack Tunney would make his announcements. Yes. The only other time we ever saw Jim Crockett Jr., it was always to make a big announcement, whether it was a ruling on a controversial finish like I'm talking about or to introduce, we're having another Starcade this year, or this year we're going to have the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Tag. It was always a big announcement. So we were conditioned as fans to understand when we saw the authority figure, it was a big deal. And I was watching AWA at the time. Same thing when Stanley Blackburn would show up. It was a big deal. You knew when Stanley Blackburn showed up on camera, oh, it's about ready to get real. Because authority was respected. I think that fits better within the the work, so mm-hmm. to speak, to use the wrestling term, that the, that the promotion as a whole is trying to put forth to its fans. You know, It's that good guys are good guys because they don't cheat. They keep the rules. The bad guys are bad guys because they do cheat. And there's some kind of governing body or authority behind all this pulling the strings. And when they come out and they speak, that's the law. It has to be followed even by the bad guy. And that is what the Stanley Blackburns and the Jack Tunneys and the Bob Geigles and the Jim Crockett Juniors, the Fritzes, that's what they all represented. And that all got thrown out the window in, in 95, 96. And for fans that haven't been watching before, they don't understand. And that worked. I think no one, no one will disagree. And, and, if I, and if you do disagree, please let, let us know in the comments. The Mr. McMahon versus Steve Austin dude, is what propelled the WWE past WCW and, have, and eventually led to them winning the Monday Night War. But was that because Vince was it being a heel on-air authority figure or was it just the perfect chemistry between the perfect foil heel in the Mr. McMahon character and the perfect anti-establishment, anti-hero baby face in, in Austin? Right. I think the, the, the latter, not the former, is what's more important. It's the same thing for me as a fan in the Carolinas in the 80s. Dusty Rose, the American Dream, was the perfect foil for Ric Flair, the nature. Iron Sheik or Heel Andre was the perfect foil for the for the babyface Hulk Hogan in the 80s WWE. 
Right. And you, you just keep going back and going back. You know, it was even a little more nuanced. It was the perfect uh, of the Briscoes against the Funks in the early 70s. It's the same thing. It's it's a heel Terry Funk against the local baby face Jerry Lawler in Memphis or even Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler in Memphis. You know, it's the young up and coming heart guys, the, the Pillman and Benoit and Owen against the Karachi Vice that's the Muck and Sing and Rip Rogers and that that heel faction. Anytime wrestling has worked, going all the way back to like even in the days before the Gold Dust Trio invented modern wrestling, you know, wham bam slash Western style wrestling, which we talked about also when we talked about the Gold Dust Trio, that it's a morality play. It's good versus evil. And when those lines are drawn and the fans can get emotionally invested in cheering for one entity and booing the other to the point where they're willing to spend their money to see the one that they pull for beat up the one they don't like, wrestling works. And all Vince McMahon did was he wasn't an in-ring competitor. So he had to create that that black and white good versus evil. He did it in a way that made sense for what he could do as a performer. Everybody knew Vince was the boss. Everybody mm-hmm. knew that the character of Stone Cold Steve Austin was anti-establishment. He was the literally gave the middle finger to to the anti-establishment. So that was the only reason why that was created. It wasn't created because the, it's, it's not that he was the authority figure supporting. It's that he was the, the nefarious heel who stood against everything the guy that you cheered for stood for. Do you, you follow where I'm going with that? Yeah, and, and I would add to it from a storytelling standpoint to make a comparison to comic book superheroes. Who's Superman's greatest nemesis? A really smart guy with a lot of money. Yes, yes, exactly. That's why I think the parallels to... Dusty Flair are so perfect. Flair's the the rich, spoiled kid with a silver spoon in his mouth, had everything he's wanted all his life. As he says, lives in the biggest house on the biggest hill in the biggest part of the na- biggest neighborhood in town. Yeah. Drives the biggest cars. These and shoes Dustin cost a, more than your car. Yeah, and Dustin was the son of a plumber from Austin, Texas, who came up the Hoth Scrabble way, mm-hmm. if you will. That story writes itself. That's essentially what, what Vince was doing with Austin. And McMahon was the spoiled rich guy boss who was born into the wrestling business, who can who controlled wrestling like a, like a puppet master controls a marionette, and Austin was this, this tough, hard-scrabble kid from a small town in Texas who's fought and scrapped his way to the top of the wrestling game. It's the same right. story, isn't it? And it, it's the type of story that always works when it's done well. Yes. Not to put myself over, but when I was most successful in my wrestling career, it's the story I told. My character was a character that on the surface looked like a mentally deficient individual, who you kind of felt sorry for because he carried a teddy bear to the ring and he was always speaking to his non-existent mama. It looked like he was lost. And then when I got a heel who was so arrogant, he couldn't see that I was actually kind of putting on an act and a lot smarter than he really thought. How rewarding was it for the fans to see that arrogant heel get his come up? It's from a guy like me. It's the same mm-hmm. story. Right. It's the same. It, whenever it's told right, it works. You can even tweak it a little bit. Why did the Road Warriors and the Midnight Express work so well? Midnight Express don't look like they should stand a chance against big old muscle heads like Mike and Joe, God rest their souls. But they were nefarious enough, and they had that, that Weasley Jim Cornette on the outside. And even when they lost, Cornette ran his mouth, so you wanted nothing more than two big old muscle heads like Mike and Joe to shut them up, didn't you? Exactly, yeah. It's the same thing. The Midnight Express represented as they are, they are who they are because of Mama Cornette's money. And... The Road Warriors put themselves as these tough, muscle-bound dudes who came up hard on the streets of Chicago. It is the same story. It's just you're just flipping the roles there. It's not difficult. It works. It has always worked. It will always work. So I think people who say that, one, 
have a complete lack of of knowledge of history of the wrestling and what the authority figure has always been in the wrestling business. But more importantly, it shows, as you always laugh when I say this, Seth, so I'm going to say it again. If you don't want to be called a mark, don't be a mark. You're being a mark in not understanding what makes wrestling work. And that's all Vince was doing. And, and let's be honest with what Bischoff was doing with the NWO thing, too. It's what they were doing. They were telling a story where the spoiled, rotten heels were getting away with almost murder, and you hated them because of it. And it worked well off of the type of heroes they had, whether that was Sting and DDP and WCW or Austin and Mick Foley in, w- in WWF. Absolutely. So we're going to move on to our final unpopular opinion for this edition, unpopular opinion number six. And this does admittedly kind of piggyback off we, what we just talked about with the authority figures and the attitude era and such. A lot of people seem to look at the Monday Night War and the attitude era as being the greatest period in wrestling history. And we're here to tell you that that's not the case. Now, right. the caveat here, greatest is a subjective term. What I think is Very great might, might be different than what other people think is great. But we're going to look at this more from a monetary standpoint than from a, how do you see, mainstream stature. Because th- things had, had evolved. There, were, there weren't nearly as many t-shirts or... Uh, things like that in the 80s. Toys, during, yeah. food products, tie, all kinds of tie-ins. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, just about every type of wrestler, even independent ones, have half a dozen shirts you can buy. Whereas, <laughs> right. That, that, that wasn't the case 40 years ago. So, yes, it is true that there was probably a bigger mainstream interest in the Attitude Era. I think you can definitely argue from a monetary standpoint that, that it wasn't. WWE right now, as we speak uh, in... March, the year of our Lord, 2022, WWE is making more money now than they ever have before, including the apex of the Monday Night Wars. Now, in the terms of TV ratings, what's the most watched wrestling match in history? In the States, I should say. The Andre Hogan. Yep, it's the Andre Hogan match from 1988. <laughs> it was something like 30 million people watched that match. So those are numbers just, that would make American just Idol to drive, Just to drive home the fact of our first unpopular opinion, that, that right. the best match of WrestleMania three was not Steamboat Savage. It right. Was Andre Hogan. <laughs> yeah. Driving that point, just, just, we're just, we're just, just to remind folks, we called that mm-hmm. one too. We got the right. numbers to back it up. And I think part of it, when people say, oh, these were the best times, they're looking at the era they grew up in or what, or what they were introduced right. in. And I think that's what will naturally be, for most people, the best times. I still look at some of the best cartoons I watched were Saturday mornings. Right. Well, yeah, because I was eight years old at the time. Of course, everything was cool back then. Rose-tinted you know? nostalgia glasses, right? Right, right. And, Those uh, rose-colored glasses a Gorilla Monsoon used to wear jealous, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as, as much as I love shows like Dukes of Hazard and movies like Smoking the Bandit, there's a reason why shows and movies like that aren't really getting made anymore because times have changed. People... Tastes have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think to, to piggyback off of what you just said, I think that the introduction of expanded merchandise is very key in this argument here that it, it, that it wasn't. You're right that the WWE is making money hand over fist now, and a lot of that revenue comes from ancillary resources and and revenue stream because that didn't exist for almost 100 years in wrestling all your money was made off of the games at Mm -hmm. live shows absolutely and jim Cornette on his podcast talks about all the time the term he uses back in the day in the territories these promoters if they had a hot territory literally had a had a license to print money that's how much money they were making you know Mm -hmm. when 
we talk about it. You like to bring it up a lot, Seth, that when the IWA, the PAFO's outlaw promotion folds and Savage joins the Memphis territory, the perceived heat between the, between Lawler and Savage is now presented on Memphis's television and is selling out two to 7,000 seat arenas every night for two years off of just local television in Memphis. Right. Not national TV. And we were talking local UHF stations you got in the old rabbit ears back in the day where that where the signal only went for about 50 miles. And it doesn't matter what town they went to in the territory. It was a sellout. Whether it was Tupelo, whether it was Chattanooga, whether it was Memphis, whether it was Evansville, Indiana, Louisville, and Lexington, Kentucky, they're selling this out every night, six nights a week for two years. Vince couldn't do that now on, on, with all the TV they weren't even doing that in Monday, during the Monday Night Wars. Right. Go back and watch that stuff on, on Peacock. Go watch the old Nitros and the old Raws. Now, the crowds were huge, but if you look up at the top of those big arenas, you'll see they had the black cloth over sections of empty seats. They're not filling out those arenas, okay? When I had my, when I had my, my WWE tryout, it was at the Georgia Dome, the old Georgia Dome in Atlanta. Now, of course, they couldn't do a Raw in the, the full Georgia Dome. That's a football state. That's something that they could have maybe filled out for a WrestleMania, mm-hmm. right? But it was, wasn't was even a third of the stadium. Basically, it was from the 10-yard line to 10 yards past the end of the end zone. They pretty much put the ring in the middle of the end zone where, where when the Falcons were playing there, right? Mm-hmm. And to just put bleachers up around it. And it seated about 10,000, 8,000. And it was full. It was full, and the fans were rabid. One of the biggest crowds I've ever performed in front of. But even in, and this is in the height of, or, or right after the height of, of, of the Monday Night Wars is when I had my tryout. And even then they weren't, they couldn't fill out. That kind of crowd was the same kind of crowd that the Crockett's and Don Owen in Portland and, and, and Jerry Jarrett in Memphis and Fritz in Dallas and Stu in Calgary on their heyday, Vernon in Minneapolis during their heydays were filling out that much in buildings and little towns every night. And remember, tickets were only, what, 5 8 and $10 back then? You mm-hmm. do the math. Right. What's a ringside seat go for now at a house show for Vince? Yeah, still probably bucks. hundreds, yeah. But. Back then, we got to Crockett's every Monday night in my local arena, and ringside tickets were $10. That is pretty so, amazing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about it. So, so mm-hmm. look, that's the first thing. Okay, that's the most important thing. I think that the revenue streams are so much more multiple because of the merchandise that came out of, of, of the Monday Night Wars and the Attitude Era have allowed it to be a look more lucrative. But if you're going solely based on just wrestling, the attitude era on can't touch what they were doing in the old territory days. Bruno, how many times did Bruno sell out Madison Square Garden during his yeah. run in the 60s? Yeah, year, years in a row, I think. Yeah, like what, eight, seven, eight years, five, seven, something like that. Mm-hmm. But the garden was set up for wrestling. It was what, eight, 10,000 people? Yeah, it's something like. And And here's the thing. We're talking about Bruno, but yet there, there are also the other territories. You know, there was San yes. Francisco. There's Eddie Graham in Florida. They all had yeah, their I'm, top guys that were selling those thousands, perhaps 10,000 tickets based on the local TV. So you're talking about arenas sold out not once a week for national TV, not a couple times a month for a pay-per-view. We're talking every week at some point, multiple cities were, sell- mm-hmm. were, were doing sellout gates based on local television. The same night that Vince McMahon Sr. is doing that in New York at the Ask Square Garden. Well, they're probably doing the same at the Greensboro Coliseum for the Crockett's. And mm-hmm. Roy Shires is probably putting that many in the Cow Palace of San Francisco with like my Villa on top. You're doing the same in, in, in probably in Calgary somewhere for Stu. 
even in smaller territories like the Gulf Coast with the Phil's brothers are probably filling the Civic Center and Mobile and put 3,000 in it the same night. So yeah. when you add up all that, that's more than what you were getting when it was just two national promotions. That is the first thing, the first half of my argument. My second half of the argument would be, let's look at the business now and what the mistakes of the Attitude Era, which I know sounds weird coming from a guy whose career was active at that point. What was the fallout from that? What was this this drive to just chase television ratings and just chase pay-per-view buys and not worry about weekly and daily house shows and be and be dependent upon things other than live gates what is that created i think that's the other the other key component to this our near and dear friend norco god rest his soul and mm -hmm. i had this conversation multiple times and and norco was younger than i was so he grew up as a guy who that was like you said his nostalgia his childhood was that attitude here that's when he was high school college age guy when he was really into wrestling even he admitted at the end of his life, he looks back now and realizes, and he was a huge ECW fan, who was a key component to, to what I'm talking about here. I'll get to that in a second. He can see it now looking back in hindsight and comparing it to what's going on today. It was detrimental to the business. Yeah. There's a lot of layers. Well, one of the biggest layers, I think, we've brought up before when we did our tribute to Paul Jones. You hear so many fans back in the day, Paul Jones is a terrible manager. Well, you're right, compared to Bobby Heenan and, and Jim Cornette and, mm -hmm. and Jimmy Hart, some of his contemporaries, he wasn't the best. But right. compare him today to the guys who try to be managers today, and he's he's Mount Rushmore, yeah. right? Absolutely. It's a, it's a little side <laughs> thing. I, I was having a conversation with David McKinney, our Armadillo mm -hmm. Dave, on, on Twitter. Yeah, South Atlanta and, Wrestling, yes. Yes. And plug. <laughs> I, I was talking about an old episode I th uh, that I I had heard the episode from from another podcast. I think it was Brian Alvarez's podcast, but and it was at the height of the Road Warriors Powers of Pain feud because mm -hmm. Paul Jones was managing the Powers of Pain and Paul Ellering was managing the Road Warriors, and they were going to have their showdown. They were going to have some sort of contest. It's what eventually led to the the what was it the lifting contest where they were doing the barbells, the bitch, the bitch, then, the bitch press, the bitch press yes. contest, yes. I remember yeah. that angle well. That yeah. was my territory. <laughs> it, it's, it's what led to that. But the the promo that uh, Paul Jones is going over, because he's going through these ideas, and one of them he says, I'm, a, I'm a guessing it was just top of the, off the top of his head, he says, a jogging contest. But at that moment, the way Paul Jones was saying we could have a jogging contest, it's like, dang it, now I want to see the Road Warriors and the Powers of Pain in a jogging contest. Because <laughs> <laughs> somehow they see probably how, could have made that did work. Did you just want to see how four, how quickly four bustle heads can get blown up? Is that what you <laughs> um, None of those four guys, and I have a lot of respect for all, I mean, I, I, I only met the Road Warriors a couple times with nice guys. You know I'm close to Barbarian and Warlord. I met him a few times. He's a super nice guy. Yeah. But Cardio was not, but, was not what any of those guys were known for. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good stuff about Barbarian that, that he, he was... Uh, he was the opposite of what you saw on TV. You know I love Barbie. You know yeah. that. <laughs> yep. I absolutely. I, you love that story I tell when the local promoter comes back complaining about how stiff he was the mafia kid. Yeah. My response was, <laughs> what'd you do to make him mad? I didn't say that thing a dozen times and never felt it. You just made him mad. That's all. <laughs> but, yeah, to steer it back, talking about how you look at those different times and those different eras, rose-colored glasses, whatever you want to call it, there's, I think there's always just going to be a bias for people to what they grew up, what they broke mm -hmm. in on. It just kind of mm -hmm. leads back to the back in my day, walking uphill both ways in the snow. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, why was Paul Jones so good compared to what we have now, but so eh, back in the day? That's, that's the key component is that, okay, yes, 
he wasn't as good as Jimmy Hart or Jim Cornette, but he was still good because the promo you're talking about, you're still talking about it 30 years later. You remember it. Right. And, and that's because of the way revenue was generated back then. It was, his promo was what was going to put butts in the seats. Right. He Everything came down to ticket sales. Mm-hmm. And Paul Jones understood my job is to be a weasel, to get the people to hate me and hate my men, so they'll pay money to come see somebody shut us up. In this mm-hmm. case, it was the Road Warriors. Right. So, so yeah, and, and that doesn't exist today. Everything is so highly produced, and that all starts in the Attitude Era, right? Because of this, this, they start giving away matches that would have been relegated to big shows and pay-per-views back in the day. Why? Because they're... They need, they need some kind of hard data to present the television people because their revenue is now generated through ad sales instead of through live gates to, to prove to these non-wrestling people, see, we're making money. Mm-hmm. People are watching us. And anytime you try to convince somebody that doesn't understand something that you actually know what you're talking about, you're, it's, it's not going to work. And, 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 and because they want, they're so desperate for these eyes on their product, then they start pushing the envelope. They start getting more and more ridiculous with the stunts. And I say stunts because they're not spots. This is what gives the rise to ECW. And there is a certain art form to the death match, but it should be relegated to something special or small niche promotions that focus on that. And I think Terry Funk and Mick Foley are prime examples of you can do that style of match and tell a story. Even Sabu to a certain level. Right. But but look at how how painful it is to to, to watch Mick Foley even try to walk now. Yeah. Look at look look at look at look at the, how bad a, a hell Terry Funk and Sabu are in now. There's a price yeah. to be paid for that style too. Yeah. And they were one at guys like Rikishi did, did a bump off of a cage. Are you kidding me? Why yeah. are you asking a 300 plus pound man who could actually go and and not hurt guys at his size do a stunt like that? Why? Right. Uh, and it, it it's and it, it, the problem that we have nowadays is because of that. Where do you go from there where somebody where you actually don't have a murder live on camera or somebody literally get get killed? We all can admit that, that was part of the reason of the unfortunate passing of Owen, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah, there it's uh, I wasn't sure if we were going to go there cuz it's kind of a grim topic, but But yeah, it's the I mean, truth. Yeah. I can't yeah. avoid it. I can't yeah. avoid it. We we can't you know? not say we're not we're not doing our job as wrestling historians without bringing this up that during that attitude era in the Monday night war, there's a pretty big body count and almost all of them were way too soon. Let's go a little bit lesser. So it's not so dark. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, he's no longer with us, but this had nothing to do with his untimely death. That was cancer. But Dr. Ness, Steve Williams career is basically over because of the brawl for all. Another Mm -hmm. stupid idea trying to, to mix MMA with wrestling. Right. At, At a time when MMA was not regulated the way it is now. There is no reason Dr. Death Steve Williams should have been injured like that and had his career cut short. The guy's a legend. He's a Hall of Famer. He, he's a legitimate tough guy with a legitimate amateur background. And he blows out his hammy and his, and his cruiser. For what? Why? Why are you not using that monster in a regular angle? Promoting him as the badass that he really is. Dependence on other forms of revenue. And, a, and, and going all the way back to the A1 days, and I can't remember if this, this made it on air or, or if this was something in, in prep when I was on one time as, as a guest host with y'all. Josh, you know, and I love Josh to death. A little shout out to Josh Wiener, who's one of your co-hosts on Wrestling Brethren now. But he made a comment about, well, that's why he liked wrestling in that era, because everybody had an angle. And I immediately said, and that's what made it suck. And we brought up when we reviewed older supercards like, like Manias and Starcades. That except for the, the top 
three or four matches, most of the matches didn't have any kind of angle coming into it. And if it was, it was one that was thrown together maybe a two or three weeks be- on TV before the show. Or, or it was something where the match was happening because there was some measure of contendership level. They, they, right, they, exactly. they had They had somebody who had strung up a, a bunch of victories, and they think, oh, okay, well, this person's deserving of a title shot now. Like you like to say all the time, it is it any wonder why Goldberg got over? You put a guy who looks like that on a win streak where he doesn't lose and he mows to everybody, he's going to get over. Oh, yeah. This is not Good rocket, this is not rocket, <laughs> this is not rocket science, folks. Yeah. But my point is on, on the everybody, it, I, to quote Surge, the bad guy from, from the, the first Incredibles movie, I'm going to make everyone special because if everyone's special, no one's special. Mm-hmm. How does Ric Flair become Ric Flair? How does Hulk Hogan become Hulk Hogan? How does Stone Cold Steve Austin become Hogan? If everybody on the card has a storyline and an angle, they don't. That's that's always in the history of wrestling was meant to be. They were in the position they were in because they drew. More people were interested in paying money to see them than anybody else on the card. And so you made them special. You made them different. And if everybody has a storyline, everybody has an angle, they're not as special anymore. And that has directly led to something that I know even current fans bemoan, the 50-50 booking. Nobody, if 50-50, nobody's getting over because nobody's winning. Well, I got to keep so-and-so strong. And this is another argument for an, another unpopular ep- opinions episode about people with actual wrestling backgrounds needing to be involved in creative. Another argument I would have with, with, with the dearly departed Norco Kipti a lot. But my point is you cannot – that comes directly out of the, out of, out of the attitude area, and now we're dealing – because they're trying to draw back a little bit from that. Because guys that have been around like Vince realize, okay, this was a mistake. Jarrett did a little bit of this when he was running TNA too, post mm-hmm. post Attitude Era. They're trying to draw back, and well, it's like Dutch Mantel says, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. We're gonna, it's gonna. Jim Cornette talks about this all. It's gonna take an entire generation of these fans getting old and stopping and watching the product and or dying, and a new generation has been reconditioned to the old ways before we're gonna get back to that again because. They think every like Josh. I love Josh, but he, everybody should have a storyline, should have an angle. No, they shouldn't. That was nothing more than than an attempt to try to, to draw the casual fan in, to hot shot the territory, to prove to non wrestling people that they had eyes on their product. And you don't need them. You, I, I, I sit there and talk about it all the time. All I care about is the casuals because that's what makes you. And I agree, and I still stand by that. But you, the territories for eighty plus years proved if you don't get too greedy. And you don't let your eyes get bigger than your stomach. You can make money hand over fist with semi-casual fans and hardcores and fill up houses day in and day out and not worry about that. And you like to point out all the time, Seth, on a lot of these podcasts, because I think it was you said you, this is a thing that, that you'd heard Jerry Jarrett talk about in a, in a, in a shoot interview. This is exactly where I was going to say next, yes. <laughs> more, yeah, more guys, the top guys nowadays are making money way more than guys back then. But way more guys were making a living back then the territory days than are now. You expound on that because you love to quote that one. Yeah, yeah. Where where it was top guys in respective territories were probably making six figures. Again, these were going in the individual territories. Jim Even Crocker, in the small territories, the top guys were making what top, upper five figures, probably yeah, nine, which is with a lot of money in the seventies or eighties. And that's without having even to go out of state. So yeah, maybe a two three know. states max, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and Jim Crocker Promotions in that mid to late '80s, right in the the heart of the Hulkamania rock and wrestling boom period, when you look at the numbers, Jim Crocker Promotions they were actually selling more tickets than WWF was, and they were still mm-hmm. staying within that area before they had tried their their own national yeah, expansion. It's about six about six states. They're running Virginia, yeah. the Carolinas, West Virginia, Florida, and Georgia. That's it. Mm-hmm. 
And the other thing about Jerry Jarrett, he had a quote where he's talking about, you know, you put the spotlight on a few people, you got the nice bright spotlight. You try to widen the spotlight out so it includes everybody, and now everybody's a little dimmer now. Yep. And all the things we're talking about were long, hard rules that have been a part of the wrestling business for 80-plus years that are broken in about a 10-year span. Not even that long during the Attitude Era. And everybody thinks that's the greatest, and it's not. A lot of those same people who say that was the greatest are probably the same people that get on line nowadays and complain about the current product. And they don't understand that the reason they don't like the current product is in an attempt by people like Vince McMahon and Jerry Jarrett and a few other people to pull back the reins from that time and go back to what it used to be. But like Dutch Mantel said, again, hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And one other thing to add to that attitude era, that late 90s, there, there was not one but two talents that were once in a lifetime, lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Both of these guys each were lightning in a bottle. I'm talking about The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Any mm-hmm. of those two guys, they could have been in different eras and they would have had the company built around them just because they, they were that great mm-hmm. and just moved the needle that much. You had them both at the same time, where, and they were both perceived as being stars on the level. Eye. Yeah. You could look at Hogan and Savage, but I think Hogan was, for the most part, certainly during the, the rock and wrestling era, he was a, a little bit higher. He was looked at as a little bigger of a star than Savage was. You could look at Flair and Dusty, but Flair was a traveling mm-hmm. champion. Dusty wasn't. I think you get what mm-hmm. I'm saying. So another it's, one, I think if you go farther back, is probably Dory Jr. and, and Jack Briscoe. But once mm-hmm. again, you've got a tour. One of them is the touring world champion. And the other one's his foil. Right. And they're taking the act all over to all the territory. Mm-hmm. It is, it's unprecedented that a promotion with the reach the WWE had at the time, having two generational talents in their primes in the company at the same time. It's never happened before, or, and it probably will never happen again. Right. I don't know because I don't have the hard numbers to look at, but just an idea of how lucrative wrestling used to be. 1961, was it 60 or 61 that Buddy, Buddy Rogers beats Pat O'Connor in Chicago there for the, for the NWA title? Was it 61? I, I think so. It was, it was before the WWF formed because I think we talked about that yeah. again in the, yeah. the Capital Wrestling yeah, episode. Right, right before, yeah, right before that. Now, for the longest time, that was the biggest gate in the history of, of wrestling in North America at the old Comiskey Park in Chicago. And mm-hmm. it was something like $33,000 or, so, or, or something like that. Or no, no, which adjusted for inflation is huge. That, that record stood for like 20 years. And that was in 1961. And once again, that house, the granted Chicago is a big city, right? Right. But that house is built on local television there in Chicago because there weren't any, there weren't cable yet. The belt meant that much because it was protected because you didn't need to switch it every week on TV like they did in the Attitude Era to keep viewers coming. You had a guy that they believed in and Pat O'Connor. You had a, a heel they wanted to see get his mouth shut up and Buddy, Buddy Rogers. You had pushed out hard on TV, and my gosh, the people showed up. Mm-hmm. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. One of the greatest promos in the history of wrestling. <laughs> and, and it would work today as much as it worked in 1961, especially if Buddy Rogers was delivering it the way he delivered it. And, and so... That's my point. You can go all the way back to like the early 60s and before where when you adjust for inflation, they were making money hand over fist because the only money they were making was coming off the gate. And if you were to take away all the merchandise and all the movies and all the BS that's involved with wrestling from the Attitude Era on and just on, even with the increased rate of price of tickets from then on to back in the day, back in the day, I think was probably and. The guys there, old timers like like Wahoo and the guys that took me under my wing, all used to point out something to me. And I want to leave on this. This will be the last point I had to drive this home. 
when you did an old loop back in the territory days, you were often in the same town in that loop every day of the week, every week. You couldn't go back and do the same match the next week. The crowd mm-hmm. would boo you out of the building, even if you were the main event. The guys now, and, and it started in the Attitude Era, they would be in Greenville t- like tonight. And let's say the main event was, I don't know, Flair versus Savage, okay? I guarantee you if they were Saturday night, tomorrow night in Chicago, Seth could call me and they probably did the same freaking match because mm-hmm. it didn't matter because they weren't coming back to Greenville anytime soon. They weren't coming back to Chicago anytime soon. It didn't matter that they did that. But here, but back then, they were going to have to have a different match next Monday in Greenville because I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I saw this match last week. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't even have the same match the next night in Spartanburg because there were going to be fans that traveled between because Spartanburg and Greenville are only 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 30, 40 minutes apart. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be fans that went to Greenville on a Monday night and then go to Spartanburg on a Tuesday night and go, I just saw this match last night in Greenville. Hey, what's up? It's a stark reminder of something I said on the Mike Mooneyham episode, our very first episode. And Mike agreed with me, and I'm humbled that he agreed with me. The guys nowadays are a thousand times better athlete than me and the, most of the guys with AJ Styles notwithstanding <laughs> from my era they're greater athletes right but they can't they can't work as good as we could they definitely can't work as good as the guys in the era before mine we had to get creative those guys really had to get they couldn't do this and and now my understanding is house shows nowadays when they do have them they're nothing more than basically quote unquote rehearsal or practice for the for the tvs and that right. what you heard too yeah yeah i've heard the stories of guys in a ring when Outsiders would come in, or, or some of the older school people would come in, and they'd be like, what are they doing in the ring? Oh, well, they're rehearsing their match. And the old-timers like, rehearsing their match? What if the people yeah. don't like it? Yeah, it's like, this is why so many guys starting in the Attitude Era would say, ah, I'm not going on house shows. They didn't care. It's like, they're not getting paid off the gate. They got a guaranteed contract. What do they care if their crowd's bored? They're going to get paid the same regardless. Not to get too political here or anything, but, I mean, wrestling was a pure meritocracy capitalist-based system for years <laughs> and then all of a sudden it didn't become one and all of a sudden the quality of the product really really dropped because of that mm-hmm. anyway anything else you want to add to why you think that, that it wasn't the best era besides that you brought up the i think one of the biggest points is you're just looking through rose-colored glass but yeah, anything I, else you want to add well i will add this since you were talking okay. about ticket sales and such uh-huh. that comiskey park match in 1961 apparently it was a $148,000 gate. Okay, it was thirty three thousand fans is what you drew. That's what you drew. Yeah, yeah. So, so but what you do, yeah. So you do the math of that. Let's see. Inflation calculator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so if it was thirty three thousand fans, that comes out to about four dollars and fifty cents a ticket in in nineteen sixty one. And now adjusting for inflation, that makes the gate from nineteen sixty one to come out to one point four million dollars. So the last and, time a non WrestleMania a non WrestleMania show for any promotion. Or, or maybe a Wrestle Kingdom by New Japan has drawn over a million dollars. Right, right. And that would also mean about $400 per ticket. So yes. think about that for a minute. We brought up another point I didn't even expect to bring up with this episode, which is this. It was a lot more economical to be a fan back then. Yeah. <laughs> right. We should be thankful that we can watch so many things on YouTube and streaming networks. But if you want to be a, a, a enjoy a live show now, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. And back then... I, I, this is going to sound terrible that I say that, but it's true. When I train guys, especially, you know, guys that are going to be on the independent, so they're going to be wrestling in front of a couple of hundred people. I'll tell them these, these fans out here, they ain't the brightest in the world. Mm-hmm. I think wrestling is always been a blue collar. You know, it always has. There's always been an attraction by middle class and upper class people to wrestling. But I think for the most part, wrestling has always worked the best when it's, when it's blue collar fan base. 
And they used to cater to that, and they don't anymore, and it shows. Yeah. I think in, in the end, this is probably the best way I, I, I could put it, because I think it's one of the reasons why wrestling has lasted for as long as it has in these different forms and how it's evolved, is in the end, I think a good wrestling event is a great way, whether it's on TV or live, but especially live, it can be something that somebody can go to vent. They escape the world, they can get away from the problems they mm-hmm. have, and they can cheer the good guys, boo the villains, mm-hmm. you know, hold up mm-hmm. their signs, uh, interact with whatever chance going on. That's part mm-hmm. of the escape. It's part of the the venting that goes on. And, mm-hmm. and I think wrestling is, as long as it's successful, it's going to have a measure of that. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. A personal story to, 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 to really drive that point home. I think it's very well known by, but I know it is by you. Maybe some of our listeners don't know. I was never a guy when I was wrestling who invited friends or family to shows. I wanted to, right or wrong, I wanted whatever monicum of success I got in getting over, I wanted it to be through my hard work and not because people that I knew were cheering or booing for me or reacting the way I told them to. Call that arrogant, I don't know, call whatever you want, but it was how I felt. But one of the few times that I did was early in my career, we were wrestling locally here in Greenville at a local high school, and I invited my father. My father was never a fan of wrestling. He did not go to wrestling with me. I went with my friends. He was quite confused as to why I even liked wrestling. And he came to the show. And after the show, we went out to dinner. And his first comment, which I found funny, is, y'all still really need to work on making those punches like they're more connecting. It was to which I said, you know, a good worked punch that doesn't kill a guy is one of the hardest things to learn in the business. Even the guys at the WWE level, some of them have ugly punches. Not everybody's Jerry Lawler or Bobby Eaton, okay? This is what it is. But uh, that was the first thing he said. But the second thing he said, it really drives home your point, which is, I get it now. I said, you get what, Dad? He said, why young men especially are really, really into this form of entertainment. And I said, well, why why do you think that is, Dad? And he said, because they're living vicariously through you. Yep, exactly. And I said, what do you mean? And he mentioned a guy who was one of the bigger heels on the show. The guy was working, as a matter of fact. Which is funny, he's now a cop, now that he's retired from wrestling. (laughs) Mike's a big guy. Mike's 6'3", 6'4", about 280. Pretty pretty well-defined for an indie guy. And he came out, and he did like a vampire gimmick. You know, think Gangrel. Mm -hmm. And he came out, and there were all these high school boys that were sitting there laughing and joking about him, my dad said, during his ring entrance. And, of course, I didn't see it because he was the heel. He went out before I did, right? He goes, and then Mike stopped, and he gave him that thousand-yard death stare you talk about. He said, those kids immediately sat down. (laughs) He said, and then I came out, and they laughed because of my silly gimmick. The same kids were laughing and hooping and hollering. But then there at a point in the match – Dad noticed when I got thrown over the top rope and landed right on the hard concrete floor there of the gym in front of them, they all like, whoa. And they were like sincerely showing, are you all right? Are you all right? And he goes, I began to realize this is an escape. Like you said, these Mm -hmm. kids, they know it's a show, but they quickly realized that you and and Mike were not guys that they wanted to meet on a dark alley and talk Mm -hmm. a lot of crap to. And that you guys were really putting your, your bodies on the line to entertain them. And they were able to let go of their preconceived notions for a moment and cheer for me and boo Mike and just like you, like he said, live through him vicariously. And I think that you can ask for nothing better out of your entertainment, whatever your form of entertainment you choose to view. And wrestling, when done right, I think is one of the absolute best forms of entertainment at doing that. 
And unfortunately, they got away from that, I think, a little bit in the Monday Night Wars. And now we're dealing with the, compli- the, the ramifications of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't have put it any better. So that's going to bring us to the end of this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. This has been volume 42. We'll be back sooner rather than later. I know we keep saying that we're going to do the Texas Territory show, and we have been working on that. But unfortunately, stuff just gets in the way before we are able to record and release. We are going to have another episode, another volume up shortly, talking the career of the late, great Scott Hall. Because unfortunately, another one has gone to that great big battle royal in the sky. And we're going to dedicate an episode to his career and his life. That'll be coming your way, and then hopefully after that we'll we'll do the uh, the Texas shows. But if you're li- listening to us for the first time, first off, welcome. We hope you enjoyed what you liked. We are available at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. All the podcatchers are under the sun. You can find us at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, a Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Give us a review. Give us a follow. Let us know what you think. Let us know what we're doing well. Let us know what you're what we're not doing so well. I do want to take a moment here. We want to thank you, all you folks who have liked us on Facebook. We now officially have over 1,000 likes and followers on Facebook. So, Train, you want to say anything to these uh, people that are keeping track of us on Facebook? No, I want to echo your sentiments. Thank you. This has been something we've been doing for a few years now, and this is kind of a crazy idea we came up together, and it's it's definitely a labor of love. We always love feedback, and and I, I... a thousand likes for let's be honest we don't do any advertising except on our own podcasts we, we don't even monetize it it truly is a labor of love so anytime you you see something grow organically like that it's kind of cool you sent me some data of of where all the listens were coming from and what were the most listened to episodes i found some of that kind of interesting and that's how that list you sent me these countries stick out in your mind yeah i mean there's there's countries i almost feel like Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan, when he was going over people that were in the Cruiserweight Classic a few years ago, and he was like, I didn't even know they had wrestling in some of these countries. So, <laughs> obviously, we, we do get a lot in the United States, Canada, the UK, Germany, and such. But going down the list here, we got listeners in Poland, Bulgaria, Finland. One of these is listed as unknown, which I'm assuming means they just couldn't tell from the ip address but i just can't help but think that that's actually parts unknown and we got people like where demolition and the ultimate warrior came from oh some, somebody sitting around putting on a wrestling mask a lucha mask before yeah. they- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> wait unknown parts unknown yeah i mean obviously i'm not surprised either most of our listens are coming from english-speaking countries because well both of us are english speakers mm-hmm. i would assume there is some translation software you can get and I've always lamented having been able to travel overseas because of my wrestling. Americans are really lazy when it comes to being multilingual. That is pretty much the norm in every country but America. <laughs> right. So, you know, it just it is what it is. But I mean, I was happy to see some Japanese listeners. For all I know, it's it's American GI stationed over there. It might be Japanese. We haven't covered a lot of Japanese stuff, but we've talked about the history of Ricky Dozen and, and maybe the, the, the split that created all Japan and New Japan. We've talked about the, the great feud between Misawa and Kawada in the 90s and all Japan. There's been some things we want to talk about in Japan. We probably will get to them eventually. Yeah, I, I have a growing list of stuff I want to talk about with, with Japan. We also got a list of the states in the U.S., New Jersey, Connecticut, where, of course, WWE's based. So I can't help but think maybe there's somebody that works for WWE that's listening to us. 
I know a man can dream. Shockingly, one of the heaviest states is Illinois, but you being Chicago based. <laughs> Right. And there seems to be a decent number in North Carolina, Georgia, and South Carolina. That probably covers me, doesn't it? Right, yeah. <laughs> My sphere of influence. <laughs> right. Is there any state we don't have any listens in? Uh, Alaska. Down? Alaska looks like it's the only one that nobody well, has had listened to. That, the I had a friend that lived in Alaska, and there's not a whole lot there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I might even take credit for the two that two in Hawaii, since I did wrestle there and have friends there. So. <laughs> I wrestled in Alaska too, but that was at a military base. So, <laughs> and we did have the episode about Dick Byer. I think was wrestling in in Hawaii in front of Pat Patterson, right? right? Where it was like, right? Oh yeah, fiftieth it... <laughs> state wrestling. I think it was, yeah. at that time is what it was called. Yeah, but I mean, uh, not shockingly, Texas, California, also very big because those are just big states in general. It's really, really nice. I I thought it was funny. We had one listen from Cyprus. That's like you said. I didn't even know they wrestled there. <laughs> right. Is that Cypress or Cypress Hill? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, man. We continue to grow. We always encourage interaction. Hopefully we'll continue to grow because I've been, I've been shocked when I see this. Thousand fans may not seem like much, but I remember one of the podcast gurus out there say, saying, you know, when you think about it, that's like a classroom. So we actually have a classroom of a thousand people that are interested in what we have to say. And that's that's a little humbling, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. As a guy who spent his whole career on the independents, two, three hundred people is a good for a, a decent independent wrestling promotion. Absolutely, and we got yeah. th- three times that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, you know, we talk obviously a lot about the territories on this show because of our what we cover. In the smaller towns and, and the territories, a thousand people was a big show. Absolutely, yeah. And that, that can be a bigger crowd than, than you can think than you might think. Not every show was Greensboro or Atlanta or Dallas or New York City or Boston or L.A. There's a lot of little small towns those territories ran in, like Moose Jaw, Canada for Stu Hart. They were lucky <laughs> they drew 200 people there, and they ran the town regularly. So, I mean, yeah, humble, humbled, is, uh, humbled is a good way to put it. Humbled is a good way to put it. But once again, thank you very much, and, 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 and any, anything you want to tell us, even if it's just drop dead. Absolutely. We hope you folks enjoy what you hear. And if you want to write us, we can be found at, you can email us at show at classicwrestlingmemories.com. Give us any sort of feedback you want there. And Train, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. That is pretty much my handle across all social media platforms. So if you do a search for that, I'll probably pop up. I'm also a moderator and an administrator on our Facebook page, so I can get stuff through that well. And a little uh, teaser. For our next episode, if you've noticed in the aftermath of the passing of Scott Hall, lots of wrestlers, both indie and big time, have told more Scott Hall stories. I have not done that yet on my Facebook simply because I'm saving my personal Scott Hall story for when we do that episode. So if you'd be interested to hear mine, and, and yes, I was able to share the ring and actually wrestle Scott once. So you, you get to hear my take on Scott Hall and my personal story as a wrestler in the business with Scott Hall on that episode. And that'll be coming your way, like I said, sooner rather than later. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we will be back next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.